You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, episode 16 with Dr. Mark Kirschenbaum. Dr. Kirschenbaum is a pediatrician in Brooklyn, New York, and he sees all types of pediatric pathology. So babies from day zero through adulthood, throughout their development, and he's the guy you go to for any mental health concerns, hence why we're talking to him today. He graduated from Turocom, which is Turo College's medical school, and completed his pediatric residency at Maimonides Medical Center. I'm very excited about this conversation. I may have been a little bit too pushy with him, which I apologize publicly, but important conversation to have had, and I'm excited to share it with you. All right, let's jump right in. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate I know we've had conversations about this offline, so I'm excited to bring this to everybody else's ears. But before we jump into some of the things that we have to talk about, I just wanted to ask you, how does a general pediatrician come to the world of eating disorders? Yeah, that's a good question. So let me just introduce myself first. Um, so I'm a yeah. So I'm a pediatrician. So my name is Dr. Mark Kirschenbaum. I graduated about nine years ago. At this point, I graduated residency from nine years ago, did a three-year residency in Maimonides Medical Center after doing medical school for four years. And the last nine years, I've been predominantly in Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox communities, Hasidic communities in Borough Park and Williamsburg, and Flatbush as well. And in that role, obviously, as a pediatrician, you come across a wide spectrum of different types of people, and at the same time, uh, different various ages from zero days old. In our personal practice where I work, we don't really kick anyone out of the office for age. Usually we say uh, until like you either leave the community, get married, start bringing your own kids. We're like, all right, we're, we're going to stop seeing you professionally. So that really kind of you, I, I have many patients that are in, well into their low to middle twenties. So it gives you a really wide spectrum age wise. And obviously as kids get older, they're, they themselves sometimes can evolve and change as a person. And so you come across different ideologies and different issues that come up from the same kid that you've seen from, you know, the age of 10 till 22, obviously as they evolve as a person, different issues come up as well. And then that's for the last nine years. And prior to that, when I did my residency in Maimonides, Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn is definitely known as a multicultural center with a lot of different subsets of people, either like immigrants or second generation immigrants that are coming over. So you get to meet a whole different swath of people and problems coming from their unique areas where they come from. And that's sort of my background, which is in general pediatrics. And I'd say during my nine years that I've been practicing where I am, it's in one of the larger offices in Bar Park. It's called Bar Park Pediatrics. And what was happening is that we see such a high volume of patients a day, each of the doctors, that it can be daunting and overwhelming for a young doctor coming out of residency. And what I found... Wait, how many patients do you see a day? A lot. I'm always like hesitant to... Oh, you don't have to say it out loud. Okay. I guess we, we get the point. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, at, this, at this point, there's, let's say, uh, eight doctors. At one point, there was we had a little bit less. We had four doctors and five doctors. And it feels like every couple of years we add on because of the volume. I'd say anywhere between 50 and 80 patients a day. 
which is a large, which five, zero. Yeah. Five, zero, 40, 40. You or the practice personal doctor. And that's usually from nine to five, nine to six. So obviously if you do the math, with how much- holy hell. Oh my God. So if you just do a little simple math of how much time each patient gets, your time is limited. So I found that when I first started, when I, when I first started, I, I think I've always had an interest in the neurobehavioral, neuropsychological, neuro, you know, developmental field. And even during medical school, on the table was pediatrics. Obviously, that's the field I wanted to do. Psychiatry was never too far behind. I was always fascinated by it. I just wasn't sure if it was uh, a match for my personal lifestyle to become a psychiatrist. And obviously, when you're going through medical school, there's always pecking order of what the most important things are to you. And which field can you achieve that most easily? So is it job satisfaction? Is it monetary? Is it family lifestyle? Whatever it is that suits you. So those were two of the, the fields that I was most interested in. Then when I got out of residency, during medical, during residency, I really wasn't that interested. I was just overwhelmed with information. And then I feel like when I mm-hmm. went to where I, where I currently work, I found that a lot of the patients with any mental health issues, because I, I had a strong interest in it, I was very comfortable discussing it. It was uh, as a fresh doctor, a young doctor coming out, I think uh, it, it, people were taken aback in a good way how I would stop my day and start talking for two reasons. One, my personal interest. Uh, two, because I had time. When I first got out of residence, I was uh, you know, <laughs> a, a little wet behind the ears and parents didn't necessarily, I didn't have that built that trust up with, par- with patients or parents. So I felt like I was able to really give undivided attention and give the time that I need to breathe. Sometimes you just need to listen in the mental health world. And as a doctor, I'd say the, one of the biggest knocks that we get is a don't sit down and listen. We just talk so much and it makes it hard for parents to feel like their concerns are being addressed. And they feel like when I do give, when the doctor does give their recommendation, they feel like their whole story wasn't quite, you know, given over, crystallized by the provider. And they feel like, ah, oh, he just labeled me with OCD, anxiety, ADHD, depression without really getting to know me. Yeah. My gosh, he asked me two questions that I have postpartum depression. Now he wants to give me Zoloft. Like, come on, give me a break. So I felt like in the beginning, I was able to sit down, make some appropriate eye contact, lower my chair, chair, make, you know, appropriate, not the talk down society. And I feel like that kind of got me into this world where I felt like a lot of the mental health scenarios or cases that were coming across our very large office, which really services a, a broad spectrum of, of Orthodox Jews, I felt like I, I started finding my way there. You know, some doctors mm-hmm. may find in an, an office like mine, which is a really good collegiate atmosphere where like one of the doctors of us is fantastic at cardiology. So all the kids with heart conditions invariably go there, almost all of them, you know, and I find myself mm-hmm. constantly getting a lot of the more difficult, time-consuming, uh, familial <laughs> issues that were coming my way. So, and I feel like as I got, yeah, and as, no, and, and as I got into it more and more, I was able to balance the time, the time issue. And that seems to have gotten better for me personally, where I'm able to get things done in a more uh, efficient manner, where I can still see patients during the day. I don't have to start, you know, I used to like block out a half hour of the day, and obviously everyone would be rolling their eyes and I wouldn't be able to see the patients. I was able to, at some point, say, okay, I'll continue seeing patients and during the day carve out shorter amounts of time to take care of the things I need to take care of. So it was more of a, to answer the long-winded answer to your question, it's evolved over time. And at this point, I feel like as a pediatrician, I've been dealing with this particular issue, which is eating disorders quite a bit. I said mental health because I do believe a lot of mental health 
work is interconnected. Sure. And um, so it wasn't like I decided to start discussing or dealing with children that were struggling with eating disorders. It was more that as I got deeper into mental health, I sort of found myself dealing with eating disorders more often, more often than not. Yeah. And I guess, listen, you're, you're treating adolescent girls, especially up until mid twenties, you're going to come across it pretty often. Mm -hmm. So I guess that makes sense. If you're talking to parent, say more toward the beginning of the kid's life, how would you recommend, especially given what you've seen, how would you recommend fostering? What sort of recommendations would you, would you recommend to help foster a healthy relationship, putting them in a healthy environment in a more preventative way? So usually when, when it comes up, I'll discuss two things that we usually talk about. What are some things that you can, some foundational pieces you can put into the house and into the relationship? And then what are some true red flags where mm-hmm. a parent should say, mm, I need to seek, seek additional help. So the foundational stuff is it's a safe home, which is an, a judgment-free safe home. By safe home, I'm referring to, so you always, you never want to shut the kids down. If there's a moment where your 14-year-old asks you a random question, it's always at the worst times, like in the middle of dinner, uh, doing homework with three different kids, while you're bathing a different one, and bedtime, and that's when I'll be like, you know, mom, you know, why or what or how would you feel if, and we have to recognize that at that moment, even if you can't answer it, you always have to say, okay, that's a great question. Let's talk about it a little bit later when it's a little bit quieter, when I can give you the appropriate time and place to investigate further. Uh, never trying to shut down a kid um, who's who's opening themselves up to you for guidance. What ends up happening is that it, it fosters that relationship with the parent uh, over time. That when other things come up, they feel comfortable reaching out and saying, "Hey, what can we what can we do about it?" So it's really again like a, a judgment free, open environment to have those conversations. That's what I would say is the is the like a foundational piece. Another thing that's really important is that role modeling, which is as parents, we have to check ourselves and recognize that kids can't differentiate context. Mm-hmm. So when I refer to context is that if a mother says or does certain things, for most kids, it's their primary caregiver. In the community in which I work, many times it's the mother. It's actually in most communities, especially here in the States, that it's the mother is the primary caregiver. They really model their behavior after mothers and they can't get context. This is an important, as you get into the high school years, maybe as a doctor can explain to to teens, adolescents, why certain things were done or said by their parents out of context. Like your mom is struggling with depression and that's the reason why she said you're ugly. It's not because you're ugly, you're beautiful, but she said it to you because she's in a bad place. That's a great, like extreme case, but I can't have that conversation with a fifth grader. They're not going to get that. Mm -hmm. If mommy said I'm ugly, she's devastated. She's crestfallen. Her world has just crumbled. So that goes with, I'm talking to nutrition now. So so the words you use are so important. The words you use are so important. And I'd say from the ages of like first, second grade, they are like sponges and they, they, they hear the tone of voice that you use. They hear the words you use. They see how you look at yourself in the mirror. It's critical. So that's laying the groundwork for future. And we have to recognize our, it's almost like parenting class versus it being mm-hmm. about the child. Yeah. Laying the ground of the child is about parenting, recognizing our own personal insecurities. And, and everyone has them. We're, we're humans. We're made up of uh, emotions. So we all have our personal insecurities. And the earlier that we identify them and address them, the better it is for the kids. So I'll tell the mothers, like, 
or the fathers, which happens quite often, I'll be like, you can feel fat all you want. Your third grader doesn't know how you really feel, but you shouldn't say, oh, I can't eat cheesecake. I'm so fat. All she heard was fat cheesecake. No good. Mm -hmm. No bueno. Stay away from that. They make very um, concrete type of connections like that. That will last a lot, a a lifetime. Talking about laying the groundwork for mental health and eating disorders in particular. It's about open lines of communication and modeling for your kids. Mm -hmm. Which is a lot of work for yourself as a parent. Oh, oh my God. Once the kids get to high school, I'm going to say it again, all bets are off because you become a source of anxiety for them. They're embarrassed of you. They don't want you to come visit them in school. Friends, they don't want you to even meet their friends. So they're they're like somewhat ashamed of their parents. It's very common, obviously. I don't know if this is for typically developing children. So you really have to, during that time, those critical years, really, really, really model for them. Mm -hmm. Really model. So let's go to those years where you can do no right. First of all, what are some things to look out for as red flags, kind of what you alluded to before, but also as an addendum to that, if you do see the red flags, but you're the most terrible person that has ever walked this world, then what do you do? Oh my gosh. Okay. So red flags, I do believe that the red flags are different in different communities because of the pressure. So they've done enough studies on this from like middle America, West coast, East coast, social media, perception, body image issues that what social norms are. So red flags will be different. In some communities, not having any starch throughout the day is is acceptable. In other communities, it's extremely not acceptable. Mm -hmm. So it's always like, what are the social norms? And then within within that social construct, for me, a red flag is when things are, when disordered eating would be when your relationship with food is unhealthy. The way we define unhealthy is a lot of times defined by social norms. So I'm skirting the issue because we have to be very sensitive to different communities have different norms. You know, mm-hmm. the Latino community over here, when I worked in Mamani's had their ideal body image versus the Hindu community had theirs and the Pakistani had their, and the, and the people from Yemen had that what, what, what their ideal was. Now working with the Orthodox community, I, I'd, I'd say that ideal is, is also uh, definitely different and it has its own inherent uniqueness to it. Mm-hmm. Red flags would be using not eating as a tool of for control with the parents, a way of acting out by restricting calories, closet eating, shamefulness. You find wrappers hidden in their room, changing their linen, and you see like candy wrappers in a drawer, and you, you're seeing a trend of it. You'll ask them about it, and they get very defensive about it. And they're like, yeah, ma, I was just, I had a bag of Snickers in my room, and I was just hungry. I was watching a movie. You're like, okay, great. That's a great answer. Mm-hmm. Very acceptable. Something I can relate to. It's more when it's they're, they're hiding it mm-hmm. and their relationship with food and not eating in public, only eating in private, playing with their food a lot, fixation on it. Uh, it gets into that OCD kind of that we don't know with our teens, the obsessive thoughts that they have. They're, we're usually not privy to it as parents, but we do see the compulsory acts and we have to recognize them. So those are some of those red flags. And I would encourage all teenage uh, parents of teenagers and teens themselves to have been in an environment, in a school environment, many times in the home where really we got our blinders on. We got bath time, bedtime, homework, preparing lunch for the next day. It's a constant, you're on, the, you're on that rat race. Like you, you don't have time to really think in the home. It's busy between the hours of 7.30 and 8.30 in most homes, in the morning, then at night from like 
five till nine, it's, it's, it's a hustle. So it's almost like you utilize the people at schools, the professionals to, to reach out to you. And you, you, I always recommend people like PTA, meet the group. You can always say, listen, if you have any concerns, please call me, let me know. Mm-hmm. Don't be one of those mothers. If, if I ever hear a parent, you know, they call me from school. They told me such and such about my kid. I told her she's wrong. I'm always like, whoa, they're teachers. They're professionals. This is what they do for a living. Mm-hmm. Even if they may not be a hundred percent right, there's a kernel of truth there. Let's, let's investigate it further. Mm-hmm. So I'd say open lines with lay leaders within the community. It could be a counselor that they came in contact with. It could be a principal. It could be a teacher. It could be, a, I'd say like a, an older friend and they'll, she'll reach out to you through a teacher and she'll say she has some concerns. Never discount those. Those are red, those are red flags. It's important. You don't get defensive. Say who me, not my daughter. She's 20 pounds overweight. How could she have an eating disorder? No silly. So I'm always like, mom is like, who? not my daughter. I mean, she's a size, whatever. I'm always like, oh, no, we, that's our parents with our blinders on saying, well, we have what we think, what we perceive as an eating disorder. So I don't want to get into like percent body fat. I hate that conversation or what's, what percent of the ideal weight are they? No, that's for inpatient eating disorders. And that's how we differentiate admissions and discharges. And if our treatments are working, but when you're out in the real world, it's about identifying red flags and addressing it appropriately. And those red flags to me are, again, just to kind of review would be uh, listening to friends and family and, and lay leaders in the community or helping us, you know, take care of our children. And then it would be their relationship with food. If we feel like they're just more than we would expect having those compulsory activities associated with food, cutting their food into really, really small pieces. And you look back and wait, she didn't have any of that chicken cutlet. She cut it into 75 little, little pieces, but nothing happened. Taking a piece of bread and cutting teeny, teeny little pieces all making it a little, little like stardust. And then like you, you realize that she didn't eat anything. Skipping meals in the middle of a, a, a family meal for in my community where I work for myself personally, it's over the weekends and these large men also that they like disappear for an hour or two from the meal. They can't be around other people eating. They only can eat and, and they keep on contact siblings, how messy they are and how they're eating and chewing too loud and all these OCD kind of tendencies. It's teachers and teacher's assistants singing in the lunchroom when everyone's like pumped and excited for a donut and chocolate milk. It's not just that they're not eating it. It could be a kid's lactose intolerant. It could be that a kid doesn't like donuts, but it's an unhealthy relationship with the disgust of other people eating it. Mm-hmm. So as a pediatrician, if someone comes into your office, what do you, what do you look out for? What are, I guess if you were doing even a more formal evaluation, cause you kind of think maybe something's happening. What what are the things that you look out for? Yeah. So I didn't answer that second part of the question. So what do you do then? And I'd say you have to first go to your primary care doctor. Mm-hmm. When the parents come to me, they many times miss those red flags. They missed opportunities for modeling. At that point, they're already kicking themselves. So they hear the words that they've used said back to them by their 13, 14 year old. Mm-hmm. And they have very little to say back. So they stop saying that you're beautiful. But you don't think you're beautiful. You don't eat cheesecake during the week. Stop telling me that every time there's a party, I have to have birthday cake. I haven't seen you eat birthday cake ever in my life. Mm-hmm. You always look disgusted and run to the, and they have nothing. You feel like a, your heart drops. They have nothing to respond. That's usually where I get involved, where it's a little bit like we've we've missed it. And I feel like as a pediatrician, as my career is evolving, I almost wish, and so our conversation we had earlier, I would love to talk more about red flags, laying that groundwork that we talked about earlier versus mm-hmm. now that my child is an eating disorder, now what? Uh, because now it's murky. Okay. So let me ask you this way, because I know, and this is our, our previous interactions. I know that you're not the biggest fan of higher level of care. Well, specifically hospitals, and you do everything in your power to keep 
your patients out of the hospital. So, and you can let me know if you want, you don't want to go down here. <laughs> Everybody, Dr. Kirschbaum has just covered his face. He's not answering this question. I'm asking this question. No, 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 no. What's been your experience? Why do you want, I mean, like hospitals are never the best place, but why do you avoid them so much? And your experience with even specialists. I mean, it sounds like with eating disorder dietitians, you have had terrible experiences. So no, no, I, I've had very few terrible experiences. I, I find dietitians, I, I really have terrible interactions with because I personally find that a regular adult nutritionist will do at times significant damage mm-hmm. by using certain words. Yeah. There's a sensitive, there's a sensitivity from nutritionists who have dealt with eating disorders over their career. They get it. Social workers that deal with eating disorders get it. We all just don't use certain words. We don't say, talk about certain concepts. We just don't use them. It's usually the people who, where they're using words and certain ideas that are maybe antiquated at this point. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be as politically correct as possible. You know, I'm not going to let you get away with that. <laughs> yeah. Because this, because this community, this community of, of, of helpers, psychology, psychiatry, nutrition, social work, pediatrician, inpatient, all need to be on the team. There's no one person that's more or less powerful. When working in conjunction with one another, mm-hmm. we can move mountains. And when we're not working with conjunction with other, we can do so much damage as a team. So if it's a small problem, just a social worker, just a nutritionist, it goes up a little bit, involve the pediatrician. It goes up in that, involve the psychiatrist. And as you start getting more, more people involved and you get, you have to remove your personal, your personal opinion. Cause now there's five opinions at the table and everyone's opinions mm-hmm. hold weight. And we have to make some ultimate decisions altogether. And hopefully if it's an appropriate group. You come to a, a decision together as in, 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 in unison. Is it going to be everything that you want to know? Obviously it's a, it's a, it's a work in progress mm-hmm. and trial and error. But as long as it's a unified front, and I forgot the most important, it's usually the parents are also involved in that decision-making. And sometimes I also involve the patient themselves involved in that decision-making. So um, I haven't had terrible experiences with nutritionists. Most nutritionists I come across are, are not the ones who, I'll say it. So if you're a nutritionist who helps mothers of three lose their baby fat in time for their brother, brother's wedding, to lose that last 15 pounds, that nutritionist probably's next patient should not be a struggling 14-year-old. It's very difficult. The same reason why I would not want to see a lady with congestive heart failure at 85 degrees who also has diabetes and then seeing a mother of a two-day-old girl who just had a bloody diaper coming from her vagina and she wants to know if her baby's dying from cancer or does someone molest their child. It's it's nearly impossible. So much so that in emergency rooms across the United States, there's an adult emergency room, there's a pediatric emergency room, and there's a psychiatric emergency room. There's a reason for that. So let me clarify. Are you saying that the, the, the dietitian who works with anybody to achieve weight loss or their specialty is weight loss will not be the person that's going to help somebody who's struggling with their relationship with food? As long as that nutritionist social worker has the capabilities, and there's some very talented people out there mm-hmm. who aren't that busy, who aren't overwhelmed and don't press play when you walk into a room and can tailor and titrate the words and the plans they put in place, of course it's possible, but it makes it that much harder. Hmm. I'm going to disagree with you on this one. If somebody says weight loss, I stay away because I agree with your first point that it's if somebody is specializing or working with somebody to lose weight, then they're automatically 
not an eating disorder specialist because it plays into the fat phobia and the weight stigma. And they're not really looking at other markers of health. It's more so achieving thinness. And that's basically their goal. You're, and you disagree with the fact that one person could do both. Mm-hmm. So I've met some talented people, but I'm going to agree with you. I was trying to be nice, but yes, I agree with you. Yeah. I don't know if we should be nice. So let's go back to the hospital question. Cause I know that, um, and I'm not going to use specific numbers mostly because I don't know, but so somebody comes into your office, they have a pretty low pulse and their blood pressure isn't that great, especially when they do the up down thing and their weight is, is not too stable. You s- Still, you really want to get into this. So, uh, my 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 uh, over the last ten years, I've developed a feeling that every situation is unique and different. Sorry, but I found that if I if, if having said that, okay, that's the nice stuff. You want to know how I feel? I feel strongly mm-hmm. that my role in all this is to is to create a team. Okay, and a team approach. And if I haven't had a team approach yet to go to the hospital, to me is like that's like that's like the end. That's if we've been unsuccessful, mm-hmm. then you go to the hospital. Okay. If you've been successful, you prevent you from ever needing the hospital. Um, you mentioned a lot of like objective terms just now, of blood pressure, uh, heart rate, weight loss. And I find if I send you to the hospital so I can fill your tank up with IV and get your blood pressure back up, your heart rate back down, I can put an NG tube, I can push in some insures. I'll get your weight up over time. You fight restraints because when I pull your NG tube, I'll put you on a little Zyprexa, a little Zoloft. And then eventually the end is that you go home. If I haven't built a healthy environment for you to go back to, I at times feel like, what am I doing here? Now, once I've built that team and we all feel, the five of us, the six of us sitting at the table say, wow, we're at the end of our rope. We're seeing no movement in the right direction. She may, she or he may benefit from an inpatient admission to recognize the gravity of the situation. Okay. Very infrequently do I find children getting into real trouble. And for me, it's morbidity and mortality. We talk about it all the time. In my world, I'm not afraid of eating disorders. I'm not afraid of anxiety, depression, OCD. I know that kids may die from it. I, I know. I don't take it lightly. A lot of doctors shy away from that. You asked me earlier why my lean towards that. I think it's the lack of fear that I have mm-hmm. and my comfortableness talking about it, knowing that I can't make morbidity and mortality go down. I can't make it less likely for them to commit suicide by me doing anything. Mm-hmm. There's nothing I can do. We can just put some people in place, a support group, and see what happens. Going to imp- very few kids that I've come across get into real trouble without ever having been in an inpatient setting. At some point, they have me still get into trouble. My point being is I would use, it, it, it does play a role in the treatment option of kids, but I wouldn't, I would always try to utilize all my energy towards creating that healthy environment first, getting the right nutritionist, getting the right social worker, getting the right psychologist, getting the right psychiatrist before I even ever entertain going to an inpatient unit versus doing it the opposite way. There are folks out there who feel, feel like, oh my God, my ki- the kid has an eating disorder. Let's send them to an inpatient, really nice looking hotel for four weeks. And then we're going to come back a different kid. And I have yet to see success with that. I have yet to see it because then we come back and we know that their biggest triggers for them is the house environment. And they go right back into it. I haven't done any parental education. I keep on saying when they come up with an inpatient eating disorder unit where parents get admitted with their kids, I'm in. 
Amen. I like that idea. That's really interesting. They'll never go, but that's, that's a good point. That's why it's just an idea. But in an ideal world, I you would have an easier time convincing me as a pediatrician who has an okay and adequate knowledge base on eating disorders. When you take the kid out of the environment, a lot of the kids have a lot of learned behaviors that they learn in eating disorder units that they don't know anything about. With the great white way of uh, the, you know, the, 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 the internet, information is coming at us really quick and kids have access to everything everywhere, but it's not the same when someone who you identify with because you're struggling for the same thing tells you about other ideas on how to either restrict calories or burn calories off quicker. And what are some of the manipulations that you can do with your parents and doctors within that unit? That's always a concern for me. And I do strongly believe in peer-driven behavior I think it's really important, peer-driven behavior. And so I do want kids to be in a community setting with other children their age, going through similar issues with them. Support groups are critical. But when you're inpatient and you have a heightened awareness and anxiety level, because novel home, that's why like they have so much better because you go home afterwards. So you don't feel like you're living with them. You mean like an IOP, they go for a few hours and come home? Yeah, they, they don't work either most of the time, but at least there, I like the fact that you can- You're such a cynic. <laughs> And then, yeah, that inpatient setting without the parents being there and getting that education component, like what's the end goal? Waking is the end goal to get them on psych meds. What's the end goal? If mom's not going to give her the Zyprexa when she gets home, then if she doesn't believe, if mom doesn't believe in psych meds, she never did. It's for crazy people and fat people. And then she's going to go home or he's going to go home. What have I gained then? Mm -hmm. Okay. So let me just clarify because the typical outcome is that when they come home, the only change is more surface. There's something that can fluctuate very easily, like weight and the damage that can be done or that you've seen happen is so much greater unless it's absolutely necessary. Let's just say their life is on the line. Danger to themselves or to others. Those are for me the biggest things that I feel. And the other thing is, is there anything that they can do in inpatient that I can't do at home? So if I have exhausted every opportunity, that means having that team in place and I still can't get this girl to eat and they're still losing weight significantly and the pulse is going down uh, up and the blood rate, I, I have to admit them. I have to. Because mm -hmm. the critical situation, the life-threatening situation. But as long as you don't get to that point, I'm okay then with it outpatient. Now that may make me sound like a little bit of a renegade and um, playing cowboy, but I also am very upfront with the parents at all times that... And, and the kids, I'm like, there's a risk you may die. You may not wake up tomorrow morning. You may have cardiomegaly, your ejection fractions, 35%. You may not eat all day, then exercise in your bathroom, doing squats and jumping jack. And you may not, you may not wake up tomorrow morning. I don't know. There's no way for me to know. One second. If that's the case and you're not sure if they're going to wake up the next day, you're still not going to send them? I'm always telling them from the beginning. If I think we have other options in front of us that I know other medical professionals would say, go inpatient. At that moment, I'm saying, obviously, I don't think they're not going to wake up the next morning because then I'd send them to inpatient unit. Oh, is that your secret? Okay. Even if there's 5%, 10%, it's always a risk assessment. Sure. And we do that always with yeah. any decisions that we make in life. So it's always like, what are the risks of me sending them to an inpatient unit? What are the what are the advantages I'll get out of it? What are the risks of going to see a nutritionist? What are the, what are the advances of going to see a nutritionist? I'm constantly doing that. 
with everything, whether it's a social worker, whether it's a consult, whether it's a subspecialty, blood work, antibiotics. I, I feel like that's my whole my whole career is based off of educated gambling. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful way to put it. Yeah, it's a, there's a 10% chance that they need this antibiotic. It's a 90% chance that it's a virus. Do I err on the side of giving antibiotics or do I err on the side of watchful waiting? I feel the same. I feel I, I see the parallels between the two conversations so great that I feel like as a pediatrician, I'm actually pretty well trained to make those decisions, which is I'm not a specialist in nutrition. When I'm mother's tired talking about meal plans, I'm like, you need to see a nutritionist. I don't do meal plans. It's not what I do. I'm not, I'm not educated enough in that field, but I am educated enough to say, continue with your nutritionist, switch nutritionists. Your nutritionist has done everything that they can. We need to look further now. Do we need to get pharmaceuticals involved? Do we need to get a social worker involved to address the OCD? Do we need like that type of stuff? I feel like completely comfortable saying that I, I probably am the right person to make that decision, but I'm very upfront with people. Yeah, you can die. We are making decisions. Even if it's 95, 5%, if I'm up taking a 5% chance with your child's life, I am very upfront and saying, listen, there's a 95% chance this kid's going to do great and we can skip the whole inpatient unit situation. But there's a 5% chance that I may be wrong. If you can't handle that, then you should go inpatient. Many times parents err on that side, but at least I was, I let them know from the beginning that, you know, what, what the bottom line, what, what, what am I looking to expect from that, from that admission? I've had kids lives saved by being an inpatient unit. And I've had some really not good experiences where iatrogenic medical mistakes happen. Oh my gosh, from beginning to end, every time you walk into an emergency room, they start an IV, then you can cause an infection. So is there, there's a risk assessment that we take at every turn. Is it worth it? Or is it not worth it? Yeah, I can respect that. I mean, especially because you've been, you've had plenty of experience this with this. You've had, you've seen many people go in and out, not go in and out. So, but, but I love that you, you tell people you can die. So dramatic. And there's like a 3% chance. Maybe even less. And the parents <laughs> usually know that. It's, it's more for the kids to hear it. That they have to understand that I'm taking a risk on them. Yeah. That very, very frequently, if no one believes in them. So I usually let them know that I do believe in you. Mm-hmm. I don't want to send you impatient. That's really powerful. Yeah. And it speaks to them. I said, listen, you may die. You may die. It's a possibility. In my world in pediatrics, kids don't die anymore. I'm practicing in a crazy time. Vaccines, new age medicine. There's crazy stuff going on. We're putting, we're doing face transplants. We're doing kidney, liver, spleen, cardio, everything transplants. It's crazy times. Kids, generally speaking, do really well. We always say they don't crack, they balance. And mental health is really where it's at. If you look at mortality in pediatrics, it's depression, gun violence, self-harm. We have to be, our tennis have to be out for these things. We have to be looking out for it. That, that Those are the kids we lose. Oh, wow. you know, if you're born and you end up with astrocytoma, a, a mass in the brain. Yeah. It's, it's a terrible diagnosis and the life expectancy is very low. You have years and years and years to sort of prepare yourself for, for, for that, for that dreaded day with mental illness. It's so sudden. So, so it, it feels so cut off that we have a responsibility to the families to sort of have our antennas up and sort of help them navigate those rocky waters. Um, and I'll be very clear. There is a place for inpatient uh, psychiatric care. And there's also a place for eating disorder inpatient, but I feel like we, you owe it to the child, to the adolescent going through this issue to at least exhaust other opportunities first. Yeah. Well, I'm going to stop busting your chops. I hope I didn't drive you too crazy, but thank you very much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You got it. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. 
If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right, talk next time.